Welcome in. This is the Blue Ribbon SEC podcast. We are thrilled to have you with us. Kevin Ingram along with Blake Lovell of Blue Ribbon. And uh, Blake, man, we're we're getting going here on this new venture with Blue Ribbon. It's really exciting with our guys, uh, Chris Dorch and Chris Lee. And you know, folks are getting year-round coverage of college basketball, the kind of quality you expect from Blue Ribbon. The whole thing's pretty exciting, isn't it? Yeah, it is, Kevin, and uh, excited to be doing this with you. And, uh, yeah, we, we talked about it, you know, of course, we're doing the main uh, Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast, which kind of, you know, incorporates the, the full national scope uh, you guys uh, had on Joe Lenardi for our first episode for that one and uh, excited for, for that, of course. And now we're going to go with a, a, a conference-specific podcast. We look at the SEC, which just makes sense uh, for all of us considering where we're at, uh, location and everything. So, yeah, really excited about this. Kind of adds another uh, dynamic to what we're doing uh, at Blue Ribbon Report. And we should remind folks, you know, if they want to subscribe, you know, the weekly newsletters and going to be podcast uh, something pretty much every week uh, as far as the podcast goes. And, you know, the, the newsletter is really going to have some great stuff. Uh, man, you, you guys are off and running with, with some great material. Yeah, it's it's been fun to do. And I tell you, you know, the, the first one we did, uh, we kind of left for, for free, basically saying, look, this is kind of what you can expect. Uh, from Blue Ribbon Report, and we had so much great feedback on that. And then, of course, our our most recent one, uh, which was uh, the transfers and such, and looking at all the different elements that have gone along with, with transfers and college basketball, talking to, I think we talked to five, six, seven coaches around the country, and just uh, an outstanding uh, insight, I thought, into what transfers look like. So, yeah, we, we pretty much tried to cover everything, you know, with Blue Ribbon, and that's what Chris has always done. Chris Dorch has always yep. been able to do that with the Blue Ribbon yearbook, and uh, it's really just off and rolling so far. You know, it's been such a strange year, you know, with the NCAA tournament canceled after most of the major uh, conference tournaments they had the plug pulled. You know, we, we were here in Nashville, and they played a couple games in the SEC tournament. They're getting ready to go on Thursday, and all of a sudden the, the thing's over with. It just feels like there, there was a big hole in the middle of the year, didn't it? Yeah, it did, and that's what I, I've kept saying to everyone. It, it's funny, I, I talked to someone the other day in terms of, um, you know, thinking back and someone asked, you know, well, how would this team have done had they played the NCAA tournament? I think the question was about Florida. Uh, someone asked, you know, how would, how would Florida play in the NCAA tournament? And my first response was, to be honest with you, I don't even remember. Like, it feels like it's been five <laughs> years since that SEC tournament or since we played the last season. And I, I told him, I'm like, look, I'll be honest with you. I have to go back and look because I don't even remember what things looked like uh, that many months ago now. It feels like these past however many months has felt more like five years. So The SEC is moving forward with football, Blake. You know, they, they put out a schedule this week, and it you know, all really kind of got, got finalized. Does that step give you optimism for basketball? I think so. Uh, I think that uh, with basketball, and I thought the first step for the SEC when you look at it from the football standpoint was – I thought Greg Sankey did the right move in terms of you kind of wait as long as you can. And that's why, you know, starting the season September 26th, when they made that initial statement to delay it, I thought that was a great move because it does give you more time to figure some things out. And now what basketball has going for it, seeing how things have unfolded to this point, is you do have time and you have time to figure out lots of different options. And, of course, we've seen uh, the NCAA, Dan Gavitt, came out this week and talked about, you know, basically they're going to probably make a decision in mid-September on whether or not they're going to delay the start of the college basketball season. 
I've said it, you know, over the past week or so now, I think it's going to be delayed. I don't know exactly when that's going to be. I know people are talking about that Thanksgiving sort of time frame where sure. if a lot of campuses, you know, are, are sending people home, um, that could kind of create your own little bubble there where you can play some games during that time range. If not, then maybe you start the first of the year. But either way, I think because, Kevin, we've seen – I know the NBA is different. I mean, we're talking about pro versus college, but – I think that the NBA has been able to pull this off so well thus far. I mean, we, you know, the latest round of tests and everything, I don't know how many it was. It was like 300, 400 something, and they had zero positive tests. And again, I know there are differences in pro and college, but I do think with basketball, the numbers game is important. There's a lot less sure. people than football. And so I, I do think that gives people optimism in terms of going forward here. Yeah, that's the big thing. You know, you think about a basketball team and you got, you know, 12 to 15 players or whatever it is, and you got a traveling party of, you know, somewhere in the, in the range of around 30, maybe. I mean, that, that's a lot different than, than what you're trying to do with football, you know, college football where you got, you know, over a hundred people and, you know, even the NFL where it's, you know, 50 some odd players and then everybody else. I mean, the numbers are very different for, for college basketball. So maybe that works in, uh, in college hoops favor there. The, the, the talk of a bubble to me is really interesting because, you know, like, like you were talking about, when you have the students off campus and then the players are just there and they can kind of, you know, be among themselves, uh, you know, that, that makes for, you know, what would seem like a little different situation than you would have if, you know, you're, you're there with all the other students on campus. I, I just think all those things are really interesting to hear people talk about when it comes to, to thinking about how you do that with, with a uh, college basketball team. I don't know how I would think that would work, but, uh, you know, we, we may find out, you know, once we get a little bit later on in the year here. Yeah, and that's what I think, too, is because college basketball is going to have a reference point. They have a reference point with the NBA, but they're going to have college football as a reference, too. Like, they're going to be able to look at this and say, okay, well, how has this worked out? Because, uh, for example, we don't know exactly what all the SEC campuses are going to decide, you know, whether or not they're going to go all virtual, stuff like that. I think the one we saw, it was on Monday, was North Carolina. I think they had, you know, started, and then now – they're going all remote and all this. So are other, you know, conferences and teams and other conferences going to follow that, that same suit where they're doing the same thing? And if that happens, again, you basically create your own bubble uh, inside your campus. So if you can do that, I think it would make it easier probably to try to play a full schedule. Um, you know, what's the other option? I think it's probably just. To, to play a conference-only schedule, but you know, as you know, Kevin, we we know the importance of of these games to mid-major teams, especially sure. you know yeah. for teams like that that are playing the SEC teams. I mean, those games are so important each and every year, and so that's what I think is going to be the most fascinating part of this because we know that for mid-major schools uh, trying to play these these SEC teams and all these other power conference teams. They don't want to lose these games because uh, they're too important, uh, not just from a you know a basketball standpoint, but also just from a financial standpoint. Yeah, there's no question. You make a make a big chunk of money off of uh, playing a you know a few of those games every year if you're say a mid-major program. Blake, you kind of you look around the SEC here. It's been an interesting offseason. We've seen a lot of guys return to school after testing the NBA waters. We've seen a lot of transfers. How do you feel like the uncertainty of just this whole pandemic situation has fueled a lot of this? Yeah, I think it's been interesting because when it first started, I leaned towards saying that I thought a lot of these guys would wind up coming back to school versus maybe going the pro route because at that time, of course, we didn't know what the overseas situation would look like, not just for guys that could be drafted in the NBA. I mean, we, we had no idea at that time about the NBA either. But um, as it's unfolded, I think you understand maybe why a lot of these guys decided to come back. 
because, you know, they haven't been able to have the usual NBA draft process with the combines and all those other things that maybe you usually have. There haven't been those those opportunities to be scouted uh, to the level that we're so used to each and every offseason. I mean, these guys are completely just dissected uh, mm-hmm. by numerous scouts, you know, at various workouts throughout the offseason. We haven't had that. So, you know, for the SEC, I thought the SEC was the biggest winner when it came to getting guys back uh, from this whole deal because, you know, while someone like Isaiah Joe at Arkansas, who initially decided that he was going to come back to Arkansas, and then, of course, Monday, he went through that loophole, which you know, the NBA had kind of offered to where you could announce that you were coming back to school, but you still had that chance before the deadline uh, to be able to re-enter the NBA draft, and that's what he did. So that that's a, a blow to Arkansas, but otherwise, I mean, you just look around, you know, look at LSU getting their trio back. Uh, that's significant, uh, I think, for the Tigers. Uh, Alabama gets a guy like John Petty back in the mix. That's huge for them. Uh, and then on down the line, there's just so many others you can point to. I mean, Tennessee at E. Ponds, when he mentioned mm-hmm. him, like, that's, yeah. that may be the biggest one in terms of uh, Tennessee, which, well, I'm sure we'll talk about them in a minute, but uh, Tennessee's potential, I think, is, is the best of anyone in the SEC. So it was huge uh, for the SEC in terms of just getting all these guys back because not only do you have – probably you know more than half the conference having a top 15 top 20 type recruiting class but now you add that experience too and i think having that combination uh, should give the sec an opportunity to have a lot of really good teams like you talk about the uh, tennessee and where it stands the sec getting eve ponds back that would figure to place them near the top of what looks like to be a pretty loaded league uh, how, how big of a get was that you know sometimes they say just getting one of your own players is the best recruiting you can do. And that, that sort of feels like that's the case for Rick Barnes and this team. Yeah, for sure. And, and I mean, you know, it's the it's the reigning defensive player of the year in a conference that's got a lot of good offensive players. And I think that's that's what's really important here is to, to have one, someone like that back in the mix. You know, it, it's, it's essential because he's an older guy. And John Fulkerson, you know, another type of all-SEC type of player – they're older guys. They've been around that group of Grant Williams and Admiral Schofield and, and Jordan Bone and Jordan Bowden and Lamonte Turner. Like they were, they were important pieces on a team like that that we know. I mean, Tennessee was the number one team in the country a couple of seasons ago. Uh, we felt like they should have gotten further in the Sweet 16. And I think to have those guys who've been in those roles w- with those types of players, uh, one of the best teams probably in Tennessee history, just in terms of the makeup of that roster. I think that's important because they have that experience now. And, you know, you bring in Jaden Springer, you bring in Keon Johnson, and you're talking about two guys that are expected to be potential lottery picks in the NBA draft. And so I think adding that to the mix and, you know, Santiago Viscovi, he came in, got thrown into the mix right away. They're just <laughs> Yes, so, he did. <laughs> I mean, just literally. I mean, he walked in the door and he threw him on the floor and played him 35 minutes. So, um, I, I just think Tennessee, to me, has the most intriguing roster of any team in the SEC. And and I would have said probably something different had Pons not come back because he's so important to what they do on defense. But he's also become a really good offensive player. Um, so it, it was. It, it may have been the biggest for any team in the league just because I think that's what puts Tennessee, for me, at the top. And right now I would probably put them ahead of Kentucky. Like one more on the Vols. They landed a big recruit for 2021 on Friday, uh, Kennedy Chandler, the top-ranked point guard. And they beat out some traditional powers to get him. What does that say you think about how Rick Barnes relates to these kids and their families? Yeah, it's significant, like you said, because you're beating out you know, Duke and, and North Carolina, Kentucky, Memphis, all these other teams um, for, again, the, the top point guard in the 2021 20, class. And 
I think it just shows you, you know, for me, I think it's success breeds success. Like Tennessee has had so much success in recent years. And, and I know people keep going back to it with the NCAA tournaments and, and Rick Barnes and all this. And um, that's the first thing I know when I put something out on, on them signing uh, Kennedy Chandler, it's just the first thing you get from people who are not Tennessee fans and maybe uh, pessimistic Tennessee fans as well. You know, Rick Barnes, he's, he's had all this talent before. Can he get them to a national championship? Uh, we know kind of what the state is of, of fandom now in terms of trying to find the thing you can pick apart. But at the same time, I mean, it's just when Rick Barnes took that job, I, I can remember so many people saying, well, he's just taking this job to basically, you know, kind of ease into retirement uh, that so much, you know, took so much out of him at Texas, <laughs> all that run. And, and I'm thinking, are you, are you serious? Like, I don't think that's going to be the case. I think he's going to come in right away. He'll get him turned around in a couple of years. And that's what's happened. And so they're just able to get these players. And, you know, something else, Kevin, I mean, look, think about like Grant Williams, Admiral Schofield. Like those guys weren't like five star recruits. Like sure. these were guys that, you know, came in as, as three star, low four star type of guys. And he just helped them develop to a point to where they are now NBA players. And I think if, even if you're now a five star guy, you see that. Well, look at what he, he did with these types of guys. Uh, you can only imagine what he could do maybe with me. And I think that's what you look at. Uh, in terms of how he's able to connect with players. You mentioned how he's able to connect with their families. And as long as Rick Barnes is there, I just think this is going to be the norm for Tennessee. With Blake Lovell, I'm Kevin Ingram. This is the Blue Ribbon SEC podcast. To talk about Kentucky, how big of a loss was it for that program that Kenny Payne made the jump to the Knicks? I mean, he's been you know, John Calipari's right-hand man for a long time there. You know, he had connections to the management with with the Knicks, you know, with, with World Wide West and Leon Rosen. Um, but but he, he moves on to the NBA. Um, that That's seen as uh, being a, a pretty big one for that program. It is. It's, uh, it is big. And I, I think there's no other way to put it because Kenny Payne, you know, a very important piece of their success over the years in terms of we mentioned connections with families and players. I mean, he's someone that's obviously well connected in terms of some of the guys he's been able to, to help bring into that program. And, you know, anytime I think you have transition on a coaching staff of, at a program like that, I think there's it's always, you know, significant. And, and I think it's just a matter of, OK, well, how do you fill that void? And of course, Bruiser Flint, um, you know, going to reconnect with John Calipari is going to be that guy that's going to replace Kenny Payne. But you know, it's still something where I think there, it's always a process and there's always a transition. And I think it's going to be interesting, you know, to see how that works out for them. Because, you know, Joel Justice, who we talked to him uh, for the transfer piece that we did, the Blue Ribbon Report, I, I talked to him. And, you know, he's someone that's widely considered, you know, one of the, the top rising young coaches in the country just in terms of, you know, he's about to, I think he's about to turn 40. Um, just a, a younger guy. He's been on that staff the past several years. And he's someone too that recruiting wise, like he's, he's built so many connections around the country. And so that's going to help just still having him there is important. But, you know, Kenny Payne and, and Calipari kept saying it over the years, like he didn't understand why Kenny Payne wasn't getting head coaching jobs like in college basketball. And now, you know, you see him make that jump to the NBA. And it's just because he's so well connected with so many top talents. And, and that is something that's going to be interesting to watch. Although we don't expect Kentucky to just to, to go speeding backwards or anything. Sure. Um, it, it's still something that I think is significant enough uh, to keep an eye on here as they move forward. 
Blake, you mentioned LSU and, and the trio of players that they got back. You know, you talk about, you know, just adding to your roster with, with guys you already had. That's really big for them. And, uh, it looks like it, it sets up for, you know, whatever this season looks like ahead. It could be a big one again for the Tigers. Yeah, it could. And, and Trenton Watford was the one that, that I honestly, I, I just kept thinking he wasn't going to come back. And the fact that they got him back, you know, again, product of, I think just the, the nature of everything right now, that was significant for them because, you know, you bring him back along with Javante Smart and Darius Days, who's really improved. Um, once again, you know, they've got a recruiting class, like what you want about it and all that in terms of what could happen there uh, with them in terms of uh, potential NBA or NCAA punishments and such, uh, if that ever happens. But for all we know, I mean, right now we just kind of have to look at LSU with what we have. And the fact is they, they've got one of the more talented rosters, I think, in the league. And so, it's going to put them in a position where I've said this to a lot of people, you know, depending on what day you ask me, some days I may have LSU at number three in the SEC behind Tennessee and Kentucky. Some days I may have them at five or six, you know, behind teams like Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, uh, and those t- types of teams. But any way you slice it, I think they're right there with the potential to, to be a top three team in the league uh, just because they play it, you know, a very interesting style in terms of how Will Wade likes to play there. I think if they get better on defense, that's probably going to be the one thing that could push them uh, ahead of maybe having a chance to compete for a league title. Uh, but, again, any way you look at it, I think just getting all those guys back, that brings that element of experience to a team that's going to have some really good players coming in once again. What do you think about Florida? they, they got to reload a little bit. Kerry uh, Blackshear used up his eligibility. Andrew Nemhard transferred to, to Gonzaga. I know they, they plugged in a couple guys that, that uh, either re, you know recruits or, or uh, transfers of their own. What, how do you look at the Gators at this point? Oh, man, Florida. Uh, Florida fans probably, they, they get tired of hearing me say this, but I, I've got trust issues with Florida, and I don't know what <laughs> it is. It's just like – I think because we've been so high on them in recent years, like even we go back to last year when they brought in Blackshear, I mean, I was one of the people that was like fully sold. I said, I think this team has Final Four type of potential. You just looked at the talent on the roster, and on paper it's like, man, they've they've got it. And it uh-huh. just didn't turn out that way. Like they were inconsistent at times, um, which has been something that's been a problem for them in recent years. And I think that's what I mean when I, I talk about the trust issues is, you know, you look at this roster, losing Blackshear, losing Andrew Nimhard, but they do get Trey Mann back. You know, he went through the NBA draft process. I don't think they ever really thought he was going to go, but I think he's someone they're going to plug into that, that Nimhard type of role. And you still got, you know, Noah Locke there. You've got Keontae Johnson, who will be an SEC player of the year type candidate. Um, it's just, uh, th- there are a lot of elements that I like about this team, but consistency is the one thing that I probably would like to see from Florida because before I'm going to say, okay, I see Florida challenging Tennessee or Kentucky at the top. I just, for for them, I think you want to see that consistency. Their defense wasn't as good last year. And that's been one thing, even though with their offense being up and down, their defense has usually been really consistent under Mike White. It wasn't that way last year. If they can step back kind of to where they were those previous years, I think they're going to be fine. I mean, they're going to be an NCAA tournament team. But, you know, for Florida, when you're replacing Billy Donovan, we know what the precedent was that he said in terms of winning back-to-back titles. And I think that's the expectation, not that they're going to go out and win the championship every year, but I do think Florida fans want a little bit more. Uh, So it'll be interesting to see if they can meet those expectations. Blake, I want to throw a couple more teams at you. Arkansas and Alabama, to me, they made really good coaching hires, you know, when they made changes there. With Alabama, you mentioned Petty coming back. But with Nate Oates, is that style sustainable, you think? Uh, it, 
I mean, it's a lot of fun to watch. And when it's going well, it's going really well. But, you know, can can you win big time playing that way to just to help you know, all out all the time? Well, here's the thing. I think you can, but I think you have to have the roster to be able to do it. And and that's why I'm, and you mentioned this, Kevin, you're fascinated by those two teams. This is why I'm fascinated with Alabama, because I think they have the roster this year to be able to do exactly what they want to do. And and I think that's going to be sort of that, that telling season where you're going to be able to say, okay, it looks like they've got the roster to do this. Now, how how effective is it going to be? Can they make it effective to the point to where maybe they're that that number three team in the SEC, uh, or possibly, you know, challenging for a league title. I think this is the year we find out. And, of course, you know, it's it's going to be different, you know, with the elements, of course, if there's not playing in front of fans and all that stuff. Like, there's a, a lot of different elements in a season like this that that's hard to predict. But I think if they play that style, they are very deep. I think he's got exactly the type of players in there that he wants. Getting Petty back was huge because that's a three-point shooter, uh, you know, for a team that's going to put up a lot of threes. And you lose Kyra Lewis. But now, look, I mean, you've got Jaden Shackelford coming back, who had a fantastic freshman season. Javon Quinterly, who sat out last year, transferred from Villanova, former five-star recruit, didn't necessarily fit in great, I think, with how Villanova wanted to play. But now he's in an up-tempo type of system to where I, it just feels like it fits his game very well. And then you bring in a you know another five-star guard and Josh Primo. You know, it's just they've got so many guards, and that's what they have to have. They have to have consistency at guard to be able to play this style and win games. And, and really, this is the season where I think we find out exactly how this is going to fit. Um, they're still going to be a little young, but, I mean, they've got the pieces. And I even mentioned, like, Herb Jones. I mean, Herb Jones, one of the best defensive players in the country, um, you've got you know Jordan Bruner, the Yale grad transfer. I think he's someone that'll play a lot right away. They they could go nine or ten deep. It feels like, and you almost have to with the style they play, getting up and down the floor as fast as they do. So this is maybe going to answer that question this year because I think they've got the they've got the tools to win a lot of games, and it's just a matter of seeing if they can do it. What about Vanderbilt? Jerry Stackhouse's group, and they, they've done some good recruiting. Seem good at developing guys. They lost a lot in Saban Lee and Aaron Neesmith. You know, both those guys are headed to play pro. Neesmith, his entry derailed their, their season uh, in a lot of ways through this past year. But, you know, can, can they take a step forward now with, with uh, some of the recruiting they've done especially? You know, I think Vanderbilt talent-wise, and, and again, if we just base it on the fact that, that Aaron Neesmith didn't play a lot last year, I think talent-wise, they're going to feel like they're going to be, you know, to a situation where it's all about developing their talent. And are they going to be able to do that this year? And and here's the problem that I think Jerry Stackhouse is running into is as much as he can do in terms of developing their talent, even if they're not going out and getting top five-star recruits and all that, you're having to, to play catch-up in a conference that is just getting so much better every yeah. single year. And I think that's the biggest problem for Vanderbilt is that you've you've gotten so far behind the eight ball, I guess, so to speak, to where you're having to play catch up. And you would probably try to you wish you were playing catch up in the SEC of about eight or nine years ago and not the one right now, because you may have been able to do that a lot easier then. But now it's just, man, it's so hard because you first thing you said, Kevin, you talked about the coaching in this league. And you think about the teams you're trying to, to chase. I mean, Buzz Williams, when he came in last year with A&M, like I thought Texas A&M was going to be the worst team in the conference. Well, they turned out, you know, being a, a top half team based on they were one of the most improved teams in the conference, 
one of the most surprising teams in the conference. And now you don't expect them to go backwards. Like they're only going to no. go forwards from here. And so it's just, I mean, there, there's so many situations like that to where I think Vanderbilt could, could have, could be a better team just to, depending on how they develop. But is that going to mean that they're the, the eighth or ninth best team in this conference? Probably not just because it's still going to take a little while for them to be able to catch up with, with a lot of other teams that have more continuity and they just have, you know, kind of that, that system that they've been in for so long. Whereas there have been a lot of adjustments thus far with Vanderbilt just because the roster turnover and you're bringing in your own guys and it just takes some time to figure all that out. Blake, before we go, I want to touch on the piece you did on transfers. The way they're viewed has changed, hasn't it? And you, you quoted guys like Steve Forbes and Andy Kennedy, and of course, both those guys have, have uh, SEC connections in their past. But you know, as they pointed out, it's different than it was, say, 30 years ago when transfers were viewed a different way. Yeah, it is, and and I tell you, it's it's something where. You know, it's, it's almost become like a necessity because we, we see it every single year. I mean, look at the amount of people that are transferring. Like, it feels like several years ago, we're like, oh my goodness, 400 or 500 guys are transferring. Well, now it's like, what is it? Close to a thousand. And it's just, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's gotten to that point. And of course, the one thing, you know, talking to Joel Justice at Kentucky, one of the things he said was, look, there's, there's this looming, you know, one time transfer deal that, that's out there too. That's basically saying, you can transfer one time, no restrictions, and think about what that's going to open up. And so it, it's something that I think coaches have to be able to navigate. And, you know, I forgot to mention Arkansas earlier, but Eric Musselman's one of the best in the business when it comes to transfers. Like, we know yeah. what he's been able to do. Look at what he did at Nevada. He's bringing guys in in Arkansas. That's how he's built his success. I mean, in the end, they've got a great recruiting class this year. So he's finding ways to do it uh, in, in both areas. So it is something that I think coaches just have to learn to navigate. And, and one of the things, too, Kevin, is it's about experience. Like, if you get these grad transfers, specifically Ole Miss got two coming in this year, uh, Romello White from Arizona State, Demencio Vaughn joins as well. Um, if you bring these older guys, experience is so important. And that's one of the things I brought up in the transfer piece is if you look at the past 10 national championship games, I think every there's only two teams in the past 10 national championship games that haven't had an upperclassman in their starting lineup. And guess who those two teams were? Kentucky, both instances, of course. Uh-huh. Um, but it's like that's a rarity. Like it's it's one thing because John Calipari has been doing that for a long time. He's been able to he's had teams without experience. But, but now it's so important to find that experience. And when so many players are transferring, Sometimes the only way to get that experience is through the transfer market. And I think that's why coaches understand now that they have to be able to do this uh, to be effective. And we're seeing it with a lot of SEC teams. And that's how they're bringing in players. I mean, Tennessee bringing in EJ Anasiki, a grad transfer from Sacred Heart. That's more experience. So it's just something that comes with the territory. And I think it's going to lead to a lot of success for a lot of these teams. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, the more of this stuff you watch, especially with college basketball, the way it is and so many young players, you notice that like at times there's a ceiling for those teams that, that are really heavy on the freshmen that, you know, if, if you had that one more experienced guy, it might make the difference in, you know, playing another round or getting to the final four or whatever. And you, you know, you hear co- coaches talk about getting older and, you know, if you're talking about pro sports, getting older isn't necessarily a good thing. If you're talking <laughs> about college basketball, then uh, getting older is a good thing. So uh, it's a really good piece. I enjoyed reading that. And, uh, of course, you can you can take a look uh, in our Blue Ribbon newsletter. Blake, it's been a lot of fun, man. We're off and running here. <laughs> yes, we are, Kevin. It's uh, it's exciting to do, like we said, uh, something that we're just adding to the mix here. And, and as you mentioned, Blue Ribbon Report, uh, all you got to do is head over to blueribbon.substack.com. You can check out all the stuff we have there. All our podcasts are free, so you don't have to worry about anything but that. Just sign up. 
get to get our podcast sent to you uh, via email, and we'll have it on, on all the podcast platforms here coming up soon as we submit it to those. Uh, and then for our paid stuff, you know, the transfer story, and uh, I know you've got a great story coming up uh, as we start our, our favorite venue series. Uh, you're going to have one coming up there uh, in this week's uh, Blue Ribbon Report, so lots of great stuff going on over there. Yeah, I'm going to be doing a series, a monthly series, and it starts with Allen Fieldhouse, and I have, I have some good memories of going there, so uh, take a look. Blake, thanks a lot, man. Thanks, Kevin. This is the Blue Ribbon SEC Podcast. He's Blake Lovell. I'm Kevin Ingram. We'll talk to you next time.